Good morning. It's really nice to be back. I want to say hello to our new friends in Auburn, California. I was in Auburn, California last week, and we had a really great seminar. The uh, church was uh, just fantastic. The pastor there, fantastic. The, um, the the response to this perspective, overwhelmingly enthusiastic. And we had some visitors from the community. A, a wonderful Presbyterian uh, pastor of his uh, church was there, and really, uh, and some members from his church were visiting, and we had a great time visiting with them, and they really appreciate this perspective as well. A couple of emails I've received since the last time I was here. I just finished two trips where I've been sharing your books and videos successfully, and I'm about to leave for yet another in Pennsylvania where I hope to share some more. However this is being financed, please offer our deepest gratitude to the supporters. I wish we were in a position to provide more ourselves, but the generosity of those who have means uh, to make this possible for so many um, who do not have the resources to make this available to spread the good news many you know otherwise here so basically saying thank you for all those who support and provide the financial resources to be able to put this forward that's from illinois and this is uh from a pastor in canada that i woke up this morning at 3 a.m and god impressed my mind to watch your dvd god in your brain seminar which was handed to my wife from a friend yesterday i watched all four seminars in one setting 3 a.m in the morning <laughs> <laughs> It was a phenomenal blessing to me, and I'm so excited to give it to my church members and friends. Uh, I am planning to have a seminar in my church on your DVDs, too. With this impact from your heaven-sent presentation, I would like to avail your free DVDs so I could reach out to others, starting with my family, my congregation, friends, and neighbors in the community. Thank you very much, and God bless you more abundantly. That's from a pastor in Canada. So, really positive responses. Let's go and begin class with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth about your character, your kingdom, your methods, your principles, the privilege of sharing this with others, the freedom that we've experienced in you and and the freedom that we see others experiencing as they come to embrace this truth about your methods, your kingdom, we pray that we will be effective in sharing this message. Be with us today as we study, and may the world soon be lightened that you might come. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Uh, and uh, a person who uh, is going to, wants to remain anonymous has made a donation to, uh, to allow a case of these to be given away for free for this weekend here locally. This is a local thing. Uh, it's camp meeting weekend. We have a case of them over here. And if you would have somebody that's visiting here for camp meeting, you'd like to take one, two, three with a study guide and perhaps a DVD and hand them out today over at camp meeting, feel free to do so. No charge on those at all. So if you'd like to do that. Um, and the case and the, and the study guides are right over there on the front. This morning, as I was having my morning devotion before we get into the lesson, I was reading in a book, Education, and I thought, wow, I just needed to share something that I read this morning out of this book. It started on page 75 because it's so pertinent to, I think, what we're experiencing in the world today. It says, The Jews, destitute of the power of God's word, gave to the world mind-benumbing, soul-deadening traditions and speculations. The worship of God in spirit and truth had been supplanted by the glorification of men in an endless round of man-made ceremonies. Throughout the world, all systems of religion were losing their, notice this, all systems of religion were losing their hold on the mind and soul. Disgusted with fable and falsehood, seeking to drown thoughts, men turned to infidelity and materialism. Leaving eternity out of their reckoning, they lived for the present. That's what's happening today. Look at Europe. Look at the postmodern world. The religions of the world were formalism and, and ritual and had no power to actually change the life. And what happened is, again, the same history is repeated, is that people said, this is ridiculous, this is fable, this is myth, let's throw this off, let's, let's live for today, for tomorrow we die. And that's what's happening in the world. As they cease to recognize the divine, they cease to regard the human. Truth, honor, integrity, confidence, compassion, we're departing from the earth. We see that happening today. Just think of the stories we hear all the time. I don't know if you heard on the news this last week. I had to call my wife because it was so incredulous. It was so outside anything reasonable that it was. I had to tell her. Did you hear the story about this girl up in Boston who called in a bomb scare? She called in a bomb scare on the day of graduation for her university so that the graduation would be canceled so that her parents wouldn't find out that she actually wasn't graduating and hadn't been going to school because she'd been getting money from her parents to pay for her tuition and she didn't go that semester and didn't want them to find out she wasn't graduating so that she called in a bomb. And she's arrested by the FBI, of course, and now she's going to prison for a bomb scare. In our society, in 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 the world in which we live today, can you even think about the idea of calling in a bomb scare for the reason that your parents won't find out you weren't going to school? 
do, do you see how the completely self-absorbed that is? I mean, it just this is what I'm thinking. Honor, truth, integrity, compassion, departing from the earth. A relentless greed and absorption, absorbing ambition gave birth to universal distrust. Do we have distrust in our society today? I mean, I, I remember even in the 60s, people didn't lock the doors of their house. The 40s, 50s, I mean, you just people didn't do it. Man, everybody's got alarms on their houses now, bars on the window. I mean, just universal distrust. Um, the idea of duty, the obli- of the obligation of strength to weakness, of, hu- of human dignity and human rights was cast aside as a stream, as a dream or a fable. The common people regarded as beasts of burden or as tools and the stepping stones for ambition. Wealth and power, ease and self-indulgence were sought as the highest good. Physical degeneracy, mental stupor, spiritual death characterized the age. Again, does this sound like today? And remember, we are in a certain way, the fulfillment, there was a first advent, and we're now expecting the second advent. And how was the condition of people when Christ came the first time? Well, again, the world is going to again be very similar, I think. As the evil passions and purposes of men banished God from their thoughts... So forgetful of him, in, so forgetfulness of him inclined them more strongly to evil. The heart in love with sin clothed him with its own attributes, and this conception strengthened the power of sin. Bent on self-pleasing, men came to regard God as such a one as themselves, a being whose aim was self-glory, whose requirements were suited to his own pleasure, a being by whom men were lifted up or cast down according as they helped or hindered his selfish purpose. Do you understand what he's saying? God is this person. If you do good for him and he's happy with you, he'll bless you. If you don't, he's going to knock you down. The lower classes regarded the supreme being as one scarcely differing from their oppressors, save by exceeding them in power. By these ideas, every form of religion was molded. Each was a system of exaction. Now get this. By gifts and ceremonies, the worshippers sought to propitiate the deity in order to secure his favor for their own ends. How much of Christianity still teaches this? But we're just using better gifts now because we're offering the blood of his son to propitiate him, and that's even better than anything we could come up with. Such religion, having no power upon the heart or conscience, could but be but a round of forms by which men wearied, wearied and from which, ex- except for such gain as it might offer, they longed to be free. Um, there was but one hope for the human race. What do you think that hope was? The hope, it's often taught in Christianity, we have one hope, and that's the blood payment, right? That's what it's often taught. Listen to this, one hope for the human race, that into the mass of discordant and corrupting elements might be cast a new leaven, a new leaven meaning a new power that brings change, that there might be brought to mankind the power of a new life, that the knowledge of God might be restored in the world. Notice what was needed, the knowledge of God. Christ came to restore that knowledge. He came to set aside the false teachings by which those who claimed to know God had misrepresented him. He came to manifest the nature of his law. And that's what we're talking about in our quarter today, Christ and his law. He came to manifest the nature of his law to reveal in his own character the beauty of holiness. Christ came to the world with the accumulated love of eternity, sweeping away the exactions which had encumbered the law of God, So what was he sweeping away? The rules, the do's and the don'ts. He showed that the law is a law of love, an expression of the divine goodness. You see? Notice the complete difference here. He showed that in obedience to its principles is involved the happiness of mankind, with with it the stability, the very foundation and framework of human society. Why? Why is our happiness dependent upon this? Because that is how he constructed life to operate. It's very straightforward. So far from making arbitrary requirements, God's law is given to men as a hedge or in a shield. Whoever accepts its principles is preserved from evil. Fidelity to God involves fidelity to man. Thus the law guards the rights of the individuality of every human being. It restrains the superior from oppression and the subordinate from disobedience. Christ came to demonstrate the value of the divine principles by revealing the power of for the regeneration of humanity. Again, notice the message, the power for... No, did it say Christ came to demonstrate the, the payment necessary to appease the wrath of God and pay our penalty for... No, he came to demonstrate the value of divine principle by revealing their power for the regeneration of humanity. He came to teach how these principles are to be developed and applied. And then the last couple of sentences. The schools of his time 
with their magnifying of things small and belittling of things great, he did not seek. His education was gained directly from the heaven-appointed sources, useful work from the study of scripture and of nature and from experiences of life, God's lesson books. The integrative evidence-based approach. Did you hear that? I hadn't read this when, I, when we came up with that. And I read that this morning and go, wow, so, so true. Full of instruction to all who bring them, the willing hand, the eye seeing, and the understanding heart. And so I'm going to add that piece because I think that's right. We have to study the scripture, science, and experience, and then apply it. That's the work of the hand. Applying those principles in our action brings transformation. And we need to add that piece to, to what we're teaching. I thought that was fantastic. What did you think? Yes. What's that reference again? Education, page 75. All right, let's go ahead and look at our lesson. The memory text this week is from Hebrews 9.15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. This is our memory text. And then the first paragraph says, and notice the memory text, and now they're going to comment on the memory text. And so notice the comments. God's eternal decision to save humanity has been revealed to us through the ages by the covenants. Though the Bible speaks of covenants in the plural, there is really only one covenant of grace. In wh- and that's exactly right. That's true. Only one covenant of grace. That's true. Uh, for, in which salvation is given to sinners, not on the basis of their merits, but on the merits of Jesus that, that are offered to all who claim those merits by faith. And then it goes on to talks about some other things there. So as you hear this, what do you think this, what, is, what does it sound like when we claim his merits by faith? What does that even mean? We got pockets of goodness, little uh, packets of something that we're applying to something else. Yeah, yeah. So it's, 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 I don't know. To me, when I always heard that, it never really made a lot of sense. To me, it always sounded like, okay, he did something good and I can claim it for me. I didn't do it, he did it, and I get to claim it. That's kind of how it always same, sounded to me. Yes? Uh, accepting a gift. Accepting a gift. Yeah, I like where that's going. I received this email from Jim Harris this week, one of our online listeners, and he sent me a paragraph out of a book by Thomas Lindsay called A History of the Reformation. A History of the Reformation, page 168, published in 2009. Listen to this description because I was, I, I'm going to be using this a lot. I'll just tell you, it's really well said. The great men who built up the Western Church were almost all trained Roman lawyers. Tertullian, Cyprian, Augustine, Gregory the Great, whose writings form the bridge between the Latin fathers and the schoolmen, were all men whose early training had been that of a Roman lawyer. A training which molded and shaped all their thinking, whether theological or ecclesiastical. They instinctively regarded all questions as a great Roman lawyer would. They had the lawyer's craving for exact definitions. They had the lawyer's idea that the primary duty laid upon them was to enforce obedience to authority, whether that authority expressed itself in eternal institutions or in the precise definitions of the correct ways of thinking about spiritual truths. No branch of Western Christendom has been able to free itself from the spell cast upon it by these Roman lawyers of the early centuries of Christian church. Wow. Yes. Page 168, Thomas Lindsay, A History of the Reformation, page 168. Wow. Do you agree? It's like, wow, yes, there's truth spoken clearly right there. That's exactly what's happened to Christianity. We describe how they've exchanged the truth to God's design, the creator, the builder of the universe, for this imperial dictator law construct and this whole theological system, what I consider the wine of Babylon, that has infected Christian thought, has come down through the ages, and we're still trying to get out from under it. So how does this false legal lens impact the interpretation of our memory text? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. See, when you look through that Roman lens, that imperial law lens, what's, what's heard? The classic interpretation, Jesus died to pay the price, to ransom us from the death penalty, offers his blood to the Father and mediates to the, the judge in heaven his, his blood praying in our behalf to assuage his wrath. That's what's taught. It's all part of the distortion. Yes, George. 
yesterday I had to close down an account at one of the local city banks, and it was interesting, I saw a little placard that says, when you enter the building, make sure you take off your dark glasses and any hats or helmets. And, you know, it makes sense, but I come from Dunlap, and, you know, we have some great little country banks over there, and it's, you don't see things like that placard around. Why, why, why does it make sense? Well, I mean, I think uh, banks in the city probably tend to have more concentration. You know, there's, there's more fear-based in the city. In the country, everyone knows. So what are they trying to achieve with the instruction? Well, they're trying to achieve safety, and they're trying to ensure that they're less likely to get robbed, I think. Yeah. Gives them more notice, but just that the fear base. Take off your ski mask and leave your guns at the door. <laughs> okay, when you enter our bank, I mean, that's what they're saying. <laughs> they want their dark glasses on. They're, they're fearful. If you really know me, you won't like me because, you know, there's, there, even though if Jesus is a lawyer and his dad is a judge and they have a good relationship, that should make the prosecuting folks a little nervous. But we go much further that, hey, these both. Our consultants are both in our healing team. They're both our educators, our flight instructors. They want us to learn how to do whether it's flying or heal up from our cancer. So just getting away from the fear base and hiding behind things. So a lot of people go to church with dark glasses on. So I agree. So here's, the, here's uh, not, uh, Hebrews 9.15 for my paraphrase. It says, For this reason, because he is the source of all truth and love, Christ is the administrator of the true healing plan, so that all those who desire may receive the promised recreation, healing, and eternal life. He died to provide the ransom of the truth necessary to free our minds from lies about God and the perfect remedy to heal our characters from fear and selfishness, which continued unabated during the little theater of the first covenant. So you can see, understand the whole thing in, in a different lens, understanding the design protocol. And if you look at the, uh, and I want to contrast this imposed law versus design law as we look at some of these words. Under the imposed law, what's mediator understood to mean? An appeaser to God. An appeaser to God. Someone who pleads your case in your behalf. An advocate. The old uh, barrister, if you will. A person who stands up and, and, is, and, and pleads for you to, to, to somehow make your case. That's, that's what it looks like. Under the design law, though, it's one who intervenes in the disease process to administer the remedy. To bring what's necessary for restoration. So, truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. I'm the source of truth. I'm bringing you the truth. And the truth sets you free. See, he's bringing the truth and restoring God's law of love back into humanity, recreating and regenerating humanity back. So he is the means, the way of, of fulfilling God's purpose for the restoration of humankind back into his ideal. He is the mediator of the plan. What about covenant? Under the imposed law, what's covenant mean? Contract, legal contract. Yeah, there you go. Under the design protocol law, what's covenant mean? Promise. Promise, relationship, agreement between two people. Sure. What's inheritance? Talking about the inheritance. What's inheritance mean under the imposed law? When you view the, through that lens of imperial law, what's inherited means? Reward. Reward? Legal property or legal rights. We inherit something legally. Under the design law, it's actually a state of being. We inherit from Jesus Christ a state of being. We are grafted in. We receive, just like the, the, uh, the, the vine grafted in, we receive from Christ a new character, a new state of being. This is what we inherit from him. It's not something legal, it's something transformational. What about ransom under the imposed law? What's it, what's it mean? Payment. Payment. Exactly right. Payment, legal price. Under the design law... It's actually what's necessary to free what holds us in bondage. So if you were in leukemia, dying in eternal state of leukemia, the ransom price to set you free would be a bone marrow transplant. And that's the price necessary. Somebody's going to have to donate their blood, shed their blood to set you free. Okay, that's what would have to happen because that's what's necessary. In this particular case, what was necessary to set us free? Truth to set us free from the lies and a new character Christ-like character reproduced within to set us free from our carnal nature, dying to self. And then, and then sins under the imposed law. Breaking up the acts. Yeah, bad behavior, bad acts. And then sin, singular, under the design law, is a condition of being. You see the difference? Yeah. All right, Monday's lesson, first paragraph. It says, um, covenants 
are based on promises. In fact, it is possible to use the, ter- the two terms interchangeably. Of course, when a covenant is made, it is expected that the person who makes the promise, covenant, has the ability to deliver what is promised, covenanted. Can God make covenants without our agreement? Yes. How about the covenant not to destroy the world with a flood again? Okay. How about the covenant that he would send Jesus as the Messiah? Can he do that without our agreement? Yes. How about the covenant to provide what's necessary for our salvation? He will do what's necessary to save us. Yes, he can do all that. Yes. But God, so God can covenant what he will do. What is our responsibility in God's covenant to save sinners? So he's covenant all the things he's going to do, but the covenant is designed to save sinners. Do we have a responsibility in that? Do we have a covenant response to make to him? What is that? What is our responsibility? Take the remedy, help others. These are all good. Here's what Oswald Chambers says. I really like this. He describes it quite right, I think. The Bible does not say, this is out of um, uh, my utmost for his highest. The Bible does not say that God punished the human race for one man's sin, but that the nature of sin, namely my claim to my right to myself, entered into the human race through, through one man. But it also says that another man, capital M, took upon himself the sin, like he uses the singular, the sin, the condition. He doesn't say the sins. Oswald was right. Took upon himself the sin of the human race and put it away. A infinitely more profound revelation, and he's exactly right. Sin is something I am born with and cannot touch. Only God touches sin through redemption. It is through the cross of Christ that God redeemed the entire human race from the possibility of damnation through the heredity of sin. In other words, we're born of the condition, and that condition will result in our terminal loss, except through Christ, he has made possible that we can be redeemed from that condition. Keep going. God nowhere holds a person responsible for having the heredity of sin and does not condemn anyone because of it. Condemnation comes... When I realize that Jesus Christ came to deliver me from this heredity of sin, and yet I refuse to let him do so. From that moment, I begin to get the seal of damnation. And quoting from John 3.19, this is the condemnation, and he puts in parentheses inside, and the critical moment, this is condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. And so what is the condemnation? When you see the light and reject the light and the truth, and what Jesus has done, and prefer the darkness to sin. That's when condemnation comes. Not because we're born in a condition which we didn't choose for ourselves that is deviant from God's design, a condition of fear and self-centeredness. God doesn't condemn us for that. It's not our fault. He knows it. Any more than HIV-infected man and woman get together and have a baby born HIV-infected, baby did nothing wrong, and it's not the baby's fault. But the baby has a condition which if unremedied results in death, we're born in sin, conceived in iniquity, and Christ came to cure the condition. And he offers us that cure. Yes? It's pretty clear that it's just self-condemnation. You know? I mean, everyone's going to agree around you. There's no one saying, I disagree, this person really didn't reject that. You know, Everyone's in agreement, but that person's the one who initiates it, and there's no one that can... Oh, so this is beautifully said. So imagine the HIV an- analogy for a minute. All of us are born HIV-infected, from parents who are HIV-infected, his parents and parents and parents. We're all born in this terminal state. And now there's a remedy. There's these triple cocktail you can get where the uh, virus will be put into remission, and you're actually you know zero viral loads, and you're not having the symptoms of the disease. And there's a lot of fake remedies out there that are claiming to help you, but they don't help you. And there's the legal claim. I just claim that Jesus took the remedy in my place, and, and he took the remedy in my place, and I just put that in my medical record for me, and I'll be good. Now, at the end, the judgment at the end. Well, this group said they took the remedy. This group said they took the remedy. Well, do we need to have an investigation and a judgment to figure out who? Or is it, as you say, self-evident in the end? And in the end, when God reveals himself in full glory, many of us will be transformed because it says in Scripture, we will see him face to face for we shall be like him. We are like him in character. We resonate with him. We can look at him. We, can, we, will, we will love him. But others will run and hide and beg for the mountains to fall on them. Same face, same experience. Why? Because the condition in their heart has not been healed to be like him and they're terrified of him. Not because he's terrifying. Because unremedied sin results in fear, self-loathing, disgust, terror. 
Yes, they have a condition. They haven't taken the real remedy, and it will become self-evident. So this whole idea of a judicial judgment scene in the end, where books are open and all these records of deeds and good deeds, and do you get this paid or that paid? It's not true. And that's why Christ said, all judgment is given to me, but I don't judge anyone. The words that I've spoken will be your judge on that day. And by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you'll be condemned. From the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man brings forth good of the good stored up in him. And so he's saying by the condition of your heart, your mouth will speak, basically revealing what's in you, and that determines your destiny. Yes? Just a brief follow-up. And you see the pain in those people when you realize, I, I believed the faith, I ignored whatever, and they see the pain in God's eyes, and really he's still not even condemning them, it's just they become immune to him. You know, they've let it metastasize where they're not going to let him. You know, God's always willing to forgive, but after the the second, at the third coming, no one's going to change sides. You know, they have they've sealed their destiny. Not only willing to forget, he's still forgiving. Right. But it doesn't matter. See, forgiving somebody for having terminal cancer and, and and not taking the remedy. I forgive you for not taking the remedy. I don't. I'm not mad at you. I'm not going to punish you for it. My heart's for you. I still wish you would have taken it. Doesn't cure them. Sure, he still reigns forgiving, but they remain terminal. That's exactly right. All righty. Tuesday's lesson. First paragraph. It says, although a covenant is based on promises, there are usually conditions to be met before the promises are fulfilled. The Abrahamic covenant involved the circumcision of all males who were born either to Abraham or his descendants. When Yahweh covenanted with Israel, he personally engraved the requirements for the relationship on tablets of stone. These requirements, preserved in the Ten Commandments, were for were to form the basis of God's everlasting covenant with all humans. Hmm. Does, anybody, does anybody's mind start going, wait a second, hold on a minute, wait a minute, there's some assumptions here. Are these assumptions true? Hopefully you guys think this way. Develop that capacity for, for critical thinking. Wait a minute, this Abrahamic covenant required males to participate to be circumcised physically. Really? Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29 says this, a man is not a Jew if he is one, if he is only one outwardly, nor a circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew, a Jew, meaning a descendant of Abraham, if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. And if you turn to Friday's lesson, and this week's lesson, you'll see a quotation from Faith I Live By, page 77, and it goes like this. This same covenant of grace, they left the paragraph out before, but it's the covenant of grace, was renewed to Abraham in the promise, in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. This promise pointed to Christ, so Abraham understood it, and he trusted in God for the forgiveness of sins. It was this faith that was accounted to him for righteousness. The covenant with Abraham also maintained the authority of God's law. The Abrahamic covenant was ratified by the blood of Christ, and it was called the second or new covenant because the blood by which it was sealed was shed after the blood of the first covenant. The covenant of grace is not a new thing, for it existed in the mind of God from all eternity. This is why it is called the everlasting covenant. There is hope for us only as we come under the Abrahamic covenant, which is the covenant of grace by faith in Jesus Christ. But the lesson says, the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision of all males who were born either to Abraham or his descendants. Does that mean that if you're going to enter the covenant of grace, which is the covenant of Abraham, that you have to be circumcised if you're a male, physically? Is that what that means? And if you're not today physically circumcised, you can't enter the covenant of grace. Is that what this means? See, the lesson doesn't really make that clear, does it? It says that to enter the covenant of Abraham, you had to be circumcised. We mean be left out. Yeah, yeah, they would be left out of that. I, I was uh, studying different things in the circumcision thing, and I looked up one under the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, and it says that Jesus talking. Like I said, I looked up different ways of looking at it. And it said in this that Jesus said, if the circumcision was supposed to go on, God would have had one man born that way. <laughs> Interesting. I hadn't read that. Jesus used it as a tool of exclusion. Exclusion. The last sentence, these requirements preserved in the Ten Commandments were to form the basis of God's everlasting covenant with all humans. They're talking about externals. So rather than these descriptions described in the Ten Commandments, 
of what you're going to be like if you're truly with God. Yes, exactly. And so, if if so, are we making the case that physical circumcision is not necessary to be part of the Abrahamic covenant? Yeah. Then why did they have to do it in the Old Testament? We read a quote in here that says if they had understood and kept the covenant, then circumcision wouldn't be required. If they had understood and kept that, then the Ten Commandments wouldn't have been required. Agreed. Deteriorating progression. Right. So it was added for a purpose, and what was its purpose? That's what I'm trying to get at. There was a purpose for it at one time, but it wasn't for all people and all times and all places through all history. No, there was a purpose. What was its purpose, and why infants? Well, remember when we th- when you think about Israel, remember they were an acting troupe with a grand stage, cool costumes, and a neat script. Seriously, every time you think of the Old Testament, think this is a play. It's a drama. It's acting out a theater. And so the reality is what we want that the drama or the theater was trying to help us understand. And so we've already read the Romans text that circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, but it was acted out in this symbolic way because where when is a, as a male circumcised in a very intimate and private place that isn't exposed to the public, and you can't walk around and go, oh, he's circumcised, oh, he's not, oh, she's... Uh, no. I mean, you can't do that, okay? So, same thing, you can't tell just by walking through the community who's got circumcision of the heart. It's not visible. And why infants? Because when you're converted, when you have been surrendered to Christ, you are initially a what? A babe in Christ. And Hebrews says that, that though you ought to be on meat, you're still on milk. Those on milk are not acquainted with righteousness. They're still focused on acts that lead to death. And so when we come to Christ as the newborn convert, that is when the Holy Spirit is to do the work to cut away our ties to the world. That's when it's to happen as a newborn convert. The Holy Spirit is being working in the heart to reshape and rechange it, right? That's why it happened in, in the infant. Because that's a, a symbolic way of saying we're newborn converts. And I will even suggest this to you. If somebody has been a Christian for 30 or 40 or 50 years and they haven't had the ties to the world cut away by the Spirit, they're still an infant. Even if they're a pastor or a church leader, they're still an infant. Unless their heart has been changed and cut away by the Holy Spirit. They're a baby. And they're not acquainted with righteousness, according to the Scripture. So that's, that's why it happened. It's, it's just simply a teaching tool to, to wait, what, why is this now, to do exactly what we're doing now, to say, why? What's the purpose? To get us to think and understand a larger reality. Second paragraph, it says, because they detailed certain terms of the covenant, the Ten Commandments are often termed the tablets of covenant. The Ten Commandments are not intended to be an obstacle a course designed to make life hard for those who have entered into the covenant with God. Instead, it is an expression of God's love. The commandments have been given for the benefit of those who have entered into the covenant relationship with their Lord. And then the lesson in the very next thing, right in the middle there, says, uh, in what ways did Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 10 uphold the everlasting nature of God's law in the new covenant? And so they're taking the, the Ten Commandments, and they're then right next thing, tying it into the, the new covenant experience, which, of course, the new covenant says, I will, this is the covenant I'll make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I'll put my laws in their heart and write them on their minds. Are they the same? Are they the same? Are, are the Ten Commandments written in stone the thing that God, the, the exact thing that God is writing on our hearts? This is what I think many, many have falsely understood because they're looking through that imperial lawyer lens rather than design lens. Ellen White, of course, did not see it that way. She actually saw design protocol stuff. And that quote in Friday's lesson, that's in our, in our quarterly, they left out the beginning paragraph of that quote. Here's the paragraph they left out. It's quite profound. As the Bible presents two laws, one changeless and eternal, the other provisional and temporary, so there are two covenants. Two laws, two covenants. And you'd be thinking, which law is part of the temporary provisional which is the eternal? Which is part of the temporary covenant? Which is the eternal covenant? We should be thinking that. And, and if something is added later, if it's added at some point in time, is it eternal? No, it's temporary. It's provisional. Which law was added according to Galatians? 
Ten Commandments were added because we needed it. Ten Commandments are part of the provisional law. It's not the Ten Commandments that get seared into your heart. What does get seared, let's keep reading. The covenant of grace was first made in Eden, when after the fall there was given a divine promise that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. To all men this covenant offered pardon and the assisting grace of God for future obedience through faith in Christ. It also promised them eternal life on the condition of fidelity to God's law. Thus the patriarchs received the hope of salvation. Fidelity to God's law, what law? The law of love upon which life is constructed to operate that Lucifer and the angels deviated from in heaven before there was any written Ten Commandments. The written Ten Commandments, as Scripture says, was a codification added so that sin might increase, so that we might be diagnosed as terminal and, and, and incapable of healing ourselves, that we might be brought back to our Creator who will put us back in harmony with His design and write His actual protocols for living into our character. Which the Ten Commandments are symbolic of, but they still were added later. Additionally, when God gave the Ten Commandments to Sinai and they presented them to the, to the Jews, what did the Jews say when they were presented? They responded. All these things we will do, and what happened? How long did they keep that? That is the first covenant that failed. Their promise to keep the Ten Commandments. And what happened to that set, by the way? I think the symbolism is great. I don't have any problem with the Ten Commandments representing God's law as long as we understand that God's law of love is much bigger it's more than just what we avoid. The law of love is also the, the responsibility to love others more than self. It's an act of giving. Christ expanded the full meaning of it when he lived here. So the Ten Commandments symbolically represent it, but it's, it's, if we just hold to that, it reduces love to the things we don't do, not to all the things we are to do. You following me? And it's much bigger. So the, if you look at the old symb- symbolism, though, typically in a lot of... Um, uh, literature, Christian literature will read in the sanctuary service how the blood was sprinkled above the ark uh, where the law that was broken was kept as a payment for the broken law. You'll hear this kind of language. But you, if you remember, there were two ten co- sets of commandments given. The first set, what happened to that first set? They were broken. And then there was a second set. Was that second set broken, literally crushed, broken, fractured? No. Which set went in the ark? The broken set or the unbroken set? The unbroken set went in there. Isn't that interesting? If this was really going to symbolize the broken law that God plays the penalty for, then it should be the broken law that went in there. But it's not. What's actually symbolized here is the recreation of perfect Christ-like character within the believer as we partake of the blood, which is symbolic, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. We partake of the character of Christ. We become partakers of the divine nature. And as we partake the divine nature, the perfect character developed by Christ is reproduced in us, so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And that's what's symbolized there. It's not a payment ever. It's a reproduction within. But again, if you've already been contaminated by the lawyers of Rome... And you've got that whole lens on your mind that you can't even see this. Yes. Is this story coming to, trying to come to the surface in 1888 and Christ Our Righteousness with Wagner Jones and Steps of Christ later on you know, by Revel? <clears throat> yes, this was the truth trying to emerge. And what did the leadership who was stuck with the Roman lawyers do? They took Ellen White and shipped her to Australia. And if you look on the map from North America, you can't get... When, when we went to Australia, we looked at the map, and I got a globe. And basically, College Dale Chattanooga area is about exactly the opposite on the globe, straight through. You can't get farther away on planet Earth than they sent her. <laughs> you have to leave the planet to get farther away than they sent her. Okay? And while she was there, what did she write? From 1890 to 1900, what did she write? Desire of Ages. Desire of Ages. Steps to Christ. Thoughts of the Mount of Blessing, Christ's Object Lessons. I mean, the greatest works that teach what we teach. This is what was written there. So this is great. Third paragraph. It says, Under the Old Covenant at Mount Sinai, the Israelites and those who joined the community were obligated to demonstrate faithfulness to the covenant by keeping the Ten Commandments. When they violated a commandment, they were expected to offer an animal sacrifice if they wished to have their sins forgiven. Does anyone in this class go, wait a second? Do you understand this again is, is, is an idea that comes from the Roman infection of imperial law and payment needing me? This is not true. Not whatsoever. Let's, let's look at the evidence for this. Were animal sacrifices necessary in the Old Testament times for the forgiveness of sins? Any evidence? 
Well, first, before that, what is the problem with teaching that animal sacrifices were necessary for the forgiveness of sins? What, what problems do that co- does that cause? God needs to be appeased. It's like the other gods. The other false gods. The old, you've got to appease them. You've got to pay them with them. Forgiveness is not freely offered. Forgiveness is not free. You've got to do something. Christ's death becomes superfluous. Because if forgiveness of sin could have been achieved with the death of animals, what is the purpose of the death of Christ? It's not necessary. We can just slaughter animals, you see? Let's look at some evidence from Scripture. It, it didn't provide a, uh, an income for the priests. <laughs> he said it provided an income for the priests. <laughs> let's, let's look at the, some Scripture. Old Testament Scripture, Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Notice, require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the requirement, not not a payment. This is out of Psalms 46, 40, verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. They weren't required. Wait, Hebrews, I won't read the text out of Hebrews, but Hebrews 10, 5 through 7 has the same quote, applying it to Jesus Christ. A body was prepared for me. Why? Because the sacrificing of the Old Testament animals were not required. What was required was Jesus Christ to come in human flesh and to achieve remedy, fix our condition, what was broken in man. That's what was required. That's what the body was prepared for him. And then Hosea 6, 6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice an acknowledgment of God rather than burnt offerings. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they were outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Notice the blood of animals outwardly cleansed. In other words, within the drama, within the little play, it acted out the cleansing of conscience and heart and mind that comes when we partake of Christ. But we have to actually partake of Christ to have a cleansed heart, mind, and renewed spirit and character. Yes? Maybe I'm missing something here. Uh, Job was offering sacrifices for his children. He said, just in case they sinned, he would offer a sacrifice for them. Was he wrong, or how do we tie this? And Job also said, though the, Lord, though the Lord gives, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And yet we have a clear description in Job, who took away from him? Did the Lord take away his children? Did the Lord bring those plagues? No. So Job didn't understand it all. Very clearly, he misunderstood. Yes. Yes. Until we get the concept that there's nothing we can do, we can't really love like Jesus loves. Yeah. It's his love. So evidences in the Old Testament of people being right with God, in a right relationship with God, restored to unity with God, without animal sacrifices recorded at all, or and or without ongoing animal sacrifices throughout their life that weren't continued as far as the record goes. How about Naaman? Any record of animal sacrifice for Naaman? How about Nebuchadnezzar? Both of them, we have indications, had a reconciled relationship with God. No animal sacrifice. How about Joseph in Egypt? Once he arrived in Egypt, do we have any record of animal sacrifices? How about Daniel and the three worthies in Babylon? How about Esther in Persia? And, 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 the, and the book of Esther actually gives us a little more insight because it actually shows her in crisis. Of course, Daniel and the three worthies were also in crisis. And what did they do? It says they prayed. It doesn't have any record that they went and offered sacrifice in their crisis, did it? None. No record. But it did record they prayed. And in Esther 4, verse 15 and 16, it says, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, not, day or night. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. No sacrifice. 
What's, the, what's going on? Thought sacrifice was required. If they're going to want God's favor, don't they need to be offering animals? No, the scripture is clear. Animals were not necessary for God's favor. Then what were they necessary for? To act out the drama in the play. They were necessary for the teaching of the enactment of the play, not for the actual favor and restoration with God. That's all. Christianity has been corrupted by the influence of the Roman lawyers. And legal ideas not in Scripture have infected with every aspect of our doctrines. God is waiting for a people who will see him as he, as he really is, be in awe of him, and in that awe, reveal his character in their character, give him glory in his character, so that others may make the right judgment about him. Now, what Bible verse did I just cite? Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. He wants a people who are in awe of him, who will glorify him in their character so that others can make a right judgment about him because it is time that we come back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the fountains of waters, the designer. Stop worshiping the dictator. That's it's, it's the time for us. Wednesday's lesson. first paragraph, it says, there were strong consequences for violating certain biblical covenants. Yahweh warned Abraham and any male who was not circumcised would be cut off from the chosen. And a litany of curses was directed toward those who refused to abide in the terms of the Sinai covenant. Ultimately, those who violated the terms of the covenant would be punished with death. The same is true for the new covenant. Those who refuse to keep God's law are also denied access to eternal life. They tried to put that positively. They tried to put that in the most benign way, but they're basically saying, they will also be killed. (laughs) Okay, okay, so it's because they were punished with death, and also the same thing. Well, first off, why were the Israelites who refused to to follow the the ceremonial law and the laws of Moses and all these things, why were they cut off from the people? Why? Mutiny. They were not part of the play. There you go. It's very straightforward. They were off script. And if you even today have a, you're a movie producer or you're doing a play and you've got an actor on stage who continually deviates from the script and will not follow the script, what do you have to do with that actor? Fire him. You're off. (laughs) Exactly. Somebody say kill him. (laughs) You fire him. That's what you do. You take him off stage. They're not, you are off stage. This is why they were banished from the people never to return because now think of the reality that it's, it's suggesting. What happens if we, in reality, go off of God's design, off of his protocols for life, off script, and separate from God? What's the consequence of that? Death. Death. And so in the play, how do you act that? If you're off script, then you're out of here. You can't be part of the people anymore. You're off script. And that symbolically teaches this idea, when you leave God's design for life, you'll be separated from him. You'll be non-existent. That was a simple teaching tool. That's all it was. It wasn't a punishment. And it doesn't mean that somebody who didn't want to be part of the acting troupe couldn't be saved. Yes? I I was just wondering, uh, going along with your example, um, I was looking at the example of Cain and Abel, um, and to me it seems like if someone is following along with the director, whatever analogy we want to use, that being involved in the play actually does curry some amount of favor. You know, the director wants people to actually go along with the scripts. Yeah, I'm just wondering, because, you know, in Genesis 4, it talks about God not finding favor with Cain's sacrifice and finding favor in Abel's, and that's why Cain, or my understanding of why Cain killed Abel. So I'm just wondering how that fits in. If you're trying to teach anything, you're a math teacher, and you're trying to teach basic math, and you have somebody in the class that uh, you, you, you've sent out as maybe you're, you have two student aides working for you, and you're going to be out one, and the student aides are in there. One student aide is actually showing proper math and how to do it. Another student, is actually, student aide is actually teaching them falsehoods. Which one do you have more favor for? Why do you have more favor for the one who teaches the truth than the false? Because, because you're mad at them, because you hate them, or because you realize that the falsehood they're teaching will infect the minds of all these kids, and these kids will then go down paths of destruction. He had favor for what Abel did because it favorably represented what was going on. He had unfavor for what Cain did because Cain was going to distort the reality and infect people's mind with more lies. It talks about the curses, and it represents... Uh, 
It mentions or references Deuteronomy 27. Before we even read it, I, just from what we know about God, from what we know about design and so forth, what do you understand the curses to be? Before we even read it. The natural consequence. See, a lot of people, when they look at Bible Genesis, when God cursed, said to the woman, you know, um, your, your, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, or curses the ground for your sake and you will toil and labor and so forth. A lot of people look at this under Roman imperial infection of law. God is using his power to make it happen. No, no, no. Under design law, God is the great designer and diagnostician, and he is diagnosing exactly the condition of events and what will unfold. So he says to the woman, you guys have now deviated from the law of love. Selfishness is now written in your heart. You are physically weaker than man, and selfishness is power over. And so what's going to happen? Here's your lot. Your husband's going to dominate you. Men are going to dominate women, and you're going to have a hard road because selfishness is now in the heart of men. That's what, it wasn't a, it wasn't a condemnation, it wasn't an infliction. He was telling them what will unfold because of selfishness in the heart of men. That's what he was saying. This is your lot. Same thing, the earth now is deviant from my design. As Paul says in Romans 8, all nature groans under the weight of sin. It's not operating as God designed, so it's going to be harder to get the bounties of the earth to produce. You're going to have to work for it where it was just coming up naturally. And so that, but if you look under that imperial law, the curses are God punishing you for these things. Same thing, same principle is going to apply here in Deuteronomy. Let's read the Deuteronomy text about the curses. Starting in verse 11. On the same day Moses commanded the people, when you have crossed the Jordan, these tribes shall stand on the mount, blah, blah, blah. We'll skip down to verse uh, 14, uh, 15. Cursed is the man who carves an image or casts an idol, a thing detestable to the Lord, the work of, of the craftsman's hand, and sets it up in secret. So why is this cursed? Why would you be cursed if you do this? What happens in the mind of a person who worships the created rather than the creator? Who worships images made with their own hand? As the highest created being on planet Earth, there's nothing on Earth we can worship that will cause us to develop in advance. Anything we worship on Earth degrades us. So if you worship a frog and have as your highest goal to grow up to become a frog, you see, you're going downhill. You're much more advanced than a frog. See? And anything on earth that we could possibly come up with our own hands is beneath us. Only God, who is the infinite one, and worshiping him causes our eternal development. So our, we're cursed by the consequence of exchanging the truth for a lie. So keep going. Uh, it says, uh, Curse is the man who dishonors his father and mother. Curse is the man who moves his neighbor's boundary stone. Uh, Curse is the man who leads the blind astray on the road. Curse is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, the widow. widow. Curse is the man who sleeps with his father's wife, for he dishonors his father's bed. I mean, that is just disgusting. Curse is the, the man who has sexual relations with an animal. Curse is the man who sleeps with his sister, the daughter of his father, the daughter of his mother. Curse is the man who sleeps with his mother-in-law. That's pretty bad, too. <laughs> Cursed is the man who kills the neighbor secretly. Cursed uh, is the man who... You know, so you're not cursed if you kill him in the open? You're only cursed if you do it in secret? Okay. Cursed is the man who accepts a bribe and kill, uh, to kill an, uh, an innocent person. Cursed is the man who upholds the word... The, upholds, upholds the words of this law, who does not hold up the words of this law and carry them out. So, why are the curses coming? Under the imposed law model, if you do these things, God's the great judge. He'll find you fault. And if you don't pay the animal sacrifice to get your sins paid and somebody else doesn't pay in your, in your behalf, then God will use his power to torture you and kill you for the bad things you've done. But if you've accepted Jesus, well, all your sins are placed on Jesus the cross and God will torture him in your place and kill him in your place. That's that imperial infection that we're operating under. It's all wrong. What happens in the mind, heart, character of people who do these things? Seriously. Some part of your gut, as I was reading this, should have been going, oh, oh, should have been revolted. Do you understand? He, these are written here because these people weren't revolted by these things. How debased must you be? Yeah. That principle of by beholding to become changed works both ways. That's right. If, if you keep acting the way that God says, don't do this because you'll be cursed if you do, you become changed to where that doesn't affect you. That's exactly right. And so in Galatians 3.10, we read, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written on, in the book of the law. Why? Because every deviation... Remember there's a quote in second um, Selected Messages, page 235. First Selected Messages, page 235. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. 
The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of sin reacts upon the sinner and makes it easier for him to sin again. And the sure result, and they separate themselves from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. And so we read here, curses everyone of sin, and then Patriarchs and Prophets, page 63. The fall of man filled all heaven with sorrow. The world that God had made was blighted with the curse of sin and inhabited by beings doomed to misery and death. Why are they doomed to misery and death? Because their condition is deviant from the design, and when you're outside the design, the only possibility outside the design is pain, suffering, and death. That's the only possibility. Uh, We'll skip this quotation of Patriarchs and Prophets regarding why the serpents came in and bit them in the desert. But the What's stated here is basically they rebelled against God and they told him they didn't want him around, so he finally withdrew his protective hand. And when he withdrew the protective hedge, then the natural um, predators and and scorpions and snakes that were in the wilderness already, they came in when he was no longer holding them back and caused this. He did not inflict this upon him. This is what happens when we deviate from God. We result in the curses of what sin does to us. You see, Satan's behind that too. He's the one... Judas Iscariot died before Jesus. He hates people. In the third paragraph, it says in verse 16 and 17, some Bible translations switch from discussing covenant and introduce the term of will instead, and will instead, even though the same Greek word is used. This brings in the whole idea of death and the death of Jesus for us. When viewed in that context, the passage reminds the believer that without Christ, the covenant, re- with, that without Christ, the covenant required the death of each sinner. However, the sinner can be covered and then cleansed by Christ's shed blood, and thus be among those who eagerly wait his return. Uh, I, I guess we're out of time, but I'll leave you with thinking about how can this language be understood in a healthy way through design law? How is this understood in a very perverted way under this imperial law, this imposed law? Why would the de- Why, if Christ didn't die, the law require the death of the sinner? Why? Under one view, God is the executioner. He's going to have to kill you. Under another view, because you're still out of harmony with how life is built, you can't live unless you get the remedy, and Christ didn't die to provide the remedy, so there's no remedy for your condition. Okay? So it's a huge difference, because ultimately this comes back to how do you see God, and do you trust him? Same thing about the covering. How do you understand the covering? How do you understand the blood? How do you understand the application of the blood? Through a legal lens or through a design protocol restoration to righteousness lens? Restoration to righteousness. Mm. And we didn't even get into the whole question on whether Christ died the punishment for sin, which some call the second death. I just should comment on this. If you want to go with Scripture, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 1.10 that by his death he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. A much more profound achievement to destroy death than to pay a death penalty. And if you understand what the second death actually is, and you define it, the second death is the death in which there's no resurrection. The death with individuality is destroyed. The death where you're actually eternally separated from God. The death in which you are overcome with selfishness. This is what the second death is. Christ didn't die this death. Christ rose again. This same Jesus. Integrity, individuality, intact. He overcame with love. He died when love, self-sacrificially, gave his life to freely surrender himself. He was not overcome with selfishness. He was overcome with love that destroyed selfishness at the cross. Thus he destroyed death. Why? Because death, how do you destroy death? How do you kill death? And by the way, the revelation says that death is thrown into the lake of fire. Death in Hades, thrown in the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death. So how do you destroy death? How do you kill death? With what? What kills death? Life. Exactly right. And Christ killed death by his life. And he gave it perfectly. He restored the law, the parameters upon which life is built, into humanity. Thus he rose again. And the lake of fire is the life-giving glory of God where rivers of fire come out before him. And this is why the death is consumed because all the universe is restored into perfection to God's design. And those who are righteous live forever in it. Death is destroyed. There's no more deviation from the way God built life. And we've got to close with prayer. 
Yes, you had a comment. We need to get the Holy Spirit, which is the fire. Yes. You don't get consumed by the, uh, the, the fire that you don't have. Yes, when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, they saw tongues of fire, the fires of truth and the fire of love, which transformed and regenerated. It didn't destroy them. Yeah. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We ask that your Holy Spirit will fall upon us with, the, with your truth, with your love, with your transforming power to take all that Christ has achieved, reproduce it in us. Let us become partakers of your very nature of love. Free us from fear, insecurity, self-centeredness. Give us the ability to know your perfect will and carry that will out that our lives may glorify you as we are in all of you and that the world might see your true nature, choose rightly and judge rightly about you and come back into the way you've created the universe to operate. We pray in your holy name. Amen.